Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Today we come to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, and I've eagerly anticipated the opportunity to deal with this passage since we started this study because it is truly one of the most sublime portions of Scripture in the entire New Testament. Let's read together from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in the 18th verse. For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The theme of this glorious passage is the corporate worship of the church. Now, if you remember, as we've looked at Hebrews 12, we've emphasized the importance of maintaining the big picture. We've said that if a person is going to be faithful in Christian discipleship, it's crucial to maintain the big picture. That is, we're a part of a relay of truth that goes back to the beginning of time. We are just on the anchor leg of this relay, carrying the same message. In fact, the fulfillment of the Old Testament message has the baton of truth has been handed to New Testament saints. That's the big picture. We've talked about the importance of looking at our troubles in life as the Father's method or means of sanctification. He uses our troubles to train us, to disciple us, to grow us, so that we can be more spiritually mature. And this morning, we learned that if you and I are enabled to persevere in faithful discipleship, regular worship with the church, and understanding the significance of what really happens here is essential. It's a necessity, not a luxury. I have no doubt that you're familiar with the fact that over the past 20 plus years, the Christian community has been engaged in what has been called worship wars. Those that call themselves Christian have fought with each other over what the church is supposed to be and what worship is supposed to look like. And perhaps you know that there has been a debate over traditional versus contemporary worship. You may drive by church buildings and see a sign out front that says traditional worship at 9 a.m., contemporary worship at 11. And traditional worship usually focuses on singing the old hymns of the faith, 
mostly the established older people come to the traditional worship service. Contemporary worship has its band and its guitars and its contemporary praise choruses, and it appeals to a younger audience. So the debate between traditional and contemporary worship, these worship wars, has been played out in terms of music styles, church architecture. You may notice that many churches today are no longer the traditional architecture of the past. In fact, some of them look like warehouses instead of what you would say is a, an old-fashioned church building. And, and many of them, instead of having a pulpit, they have a stage. If they do have a lectern for the preacher, it's one of these plexiglass portable lecterns instead of a stationary fixed, you know, something they can move so that they can conduct the various dramatic scenes. And I'm not poking fun at anybody. I'm just simply saying that this is the scene that has taken place over the past 20 plus years and virtually every aspect of how a church functions and operates has been redefined for the modern audience. Basically, it has been an attempt on one side to reform traditional worship to make it more appealing to young people and outsiders. And on the other hand, there's been an attempt to try to preserve and protect the traditions of the past. These are the worship wars. Now, primitive Baptists have purposely tried to resist the temptation to conform to the trendiness of the pop Christian culture. And we've done so not because we're backward and we don't have enough money to buy a stage and a guitar, but we've done so out of a conviction that Scripture regulates everything that we are to do in corporate worship and in the life of the church. It's something we believe that the Bible tells us how we're supposed to worship. That worship is not something, and the way the church functions is not something left to polls and popular trends in the culture, but it's something that God has specified. You know, he told Moses to do all things according to the pattern that I showed thee in the mount. God had a particular plan for how he intended to be worshipped. And our ultimate goal in worship is not to cater to the popular palate, but it's to please and glorify God, not to accommodate the spirit of the age. Now, according to this passage that I've read in your hearing this morning, corporate worship is a supernatural event. That's not miraculous. There's a difference in the miraculous and the supernatural. And it's the difference between species and genus. You know, every miracle is something supernatural, but not everything supernatural is truly miraculous. A miracle is an exception to natural law. Corporate worship involves people like us. We're not, you know, exceptions to natural law. We come here in our automobiles and we gather and we sing out of hymn books and we pray together. You know, we use our voices and we read from the Bible and we try to explain what it means. But I'll tell you, there is something supernatural going on here. When the saints worship, it is not simply a lecture. It's not simply a classroom setting. There is something heavenly. In fact, worship, according to Hebrews chapter 12, will give you and me a taste of heaven while we live in this world. And we sang about that just a moment ago. He says in the hymn, From every stormy wind that blows, these words, There, there, that is at the mercy seat, on eagle's wings, 
we soar. Notice, my friends, we rise above the vain and mundane and perishable things of the world. There, there on eagle's wings we soar, and sin and guilt seem there no more. Have you ever been in church, my friends, and you forgot about the troubles of the world? And your sins had an answer, and the guilt of the conscience was done away with. And heaven comes down, our souls to greet, and glory crowns the mercy seat. I want to say that these words sound so foreign to our ordinary way of thinking that what I'm saying this morning may appear to be very unreal to you, but I'm telling you it's very real. Whether you know it or not, my beloved, when this church meets in worship, something supernatural is happening. Something heavenly is taking place. You are come, he says in our text, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And I suspect that few people really believe this passage, but it is a revolutionary truth. And if you and I ever get a glimpse of what he's teaching in these verses, it will revolutionize how we approach worship with the church. Now, you'll notice in the passage I read, there's a contrast between verse 18 and verse 22. For you are not come, says verse 18, verse 22, but you are come, says verse 22. You are not come unto Mount Sinai, the mountain that burned with fire and blackness and tempest and darkness. And of course, that's a reference back to the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, the scene or the setting of the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments are in what chapter in your Old Testament? Exodus 20. But Exodus 19 sets the stage, the scene, for what transpires in Exodus 20 and following. And I want us, before we talk about what worship is, according to Hebrews chapter 12, I want us to talk about what worship is not. You are not come to the mountain that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest. Notice, first of all, new covenant worship is not something purely physical and material. This Old Testament mountain, he says, might be touched. It was tangible. You could touch it. It was material. And he says, in the new covenant, we're come not to uh, something that can be touched like the old covenant was. In other words, New Covenant worship is not a matter of outward form and external ceremonies. It's not something purely physical. There's a spiritual element involved. Now, you may think, well, I'm going to church today. Okay, I did my duty. We got there. We sang. We listened to a sermon. We're going home. But I'm telling you, my friends, there's something spiritual taking place here, even though we may not be aware of it. In spite of our oblivion, I want to say that this is not something purely physical and material and earthly. Neither is it something intimidating and foreboding. Notice he says, this mountain that might be touched is a mountain that burned with fire and with blackness and tempest and darkness and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. I want to turn back for just a moment to Exodus chapter 19 and read how intimidating Mount Sinai was. You know, don't you, that as we've studied through Hebrews, that the contrast between the law and the gospel, between the old covenant and the new covenant, between the way they did things under the old 
Testament period and the way that we do things now since Jesus Christ has come are pitted against each other and we're taught that the new covenant is better than, which is one of the key words in Hebrews, or superior to the old. You say, Brother Mike, it doesn't seem like it. Where are your trappings and your bells and whistles? Where is all of the ornamentation that the law service had? You know, the priest's garments and the tabernacle and the ceremonies. It was all very ornate and impressive. And this is pretty boring in the new covenant, to be honest. It doesn't feel like what we're doing here is superior to the old. But see, here's the sense in which it's superior. It's superior in terms of the fact that we're dwelling in reality, not just in a shadow We're not anticipating something that is to come, but my friends, we're living in retrospect of the finished work of redemption. We're living on this side of the cross. They were looking forward to the cross. We are living in the light of redemption accomplished and applied, of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and everything that was pictured and prefigured under the old law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's very common today to hear people of a certain eschatological school say, you believe in replacement theology, that you believe that the new covenant replaces the old. No, I believe in fulfillment theology. I believe that the new covenant fulfills, it completes the old, that the old built in rising action to the crescendo of the coming of Jesus Christ. And since he has come, there is no need for the pictures anymore because we have the real thing. We have the real McCoy. So what the New Testament worship is not, it is not something that can be touched. It's not something purely external and physical. You know, they could have touched Mount Sinai. It was an actual mountain. Somebody says, well, if you truly want to worship God, you need to go to this place and you need to go through these ceremonies. This is the only way of true worship. He says it's not merely a matter of something physical, outward, mechanical, and material. It's something spiritual. The kingdom of God is within you. And secondly, it's not something that you have to be afraid of, that's frightening and intimidating and forbidding. Exodus 19 describes a very foreboding and intimidating scene. Listen to this. Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their clothes. So two days prior to the worship time, when I meet with you, Moses, on top of Mount Sinai, you tell the people to make elaborate preparations. Wash all of your clothes. Sanctify them for two days. Today and tomorrow, let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For, he says, on the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about the mountain. So make sure you put a perimeter. You put up fencing around Mount Sinai so that the people don't get too close. You're to limit their access, saying, take heed to yourselves. That's a warning. That's the language of beware. Take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. For whosoever toucheth the mount... They could have touched, it was physical, but he says, don't do it. Don't dare do it. For whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. Does this sound like it's a very inviting and welcoming scene? Don't come to church or you'll be put to death. Don't get too close to God. You see, the law depicts a holy God who is very austere, very angry with sin. 
And the people were told to keep your distance from God. Thou shalt not put forth a hand to touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be a beast or a man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come to the mountain. So can you imagine, he had given them this message when the day finally came and the ram's horn blew long. And they said, it's time to come to the base of Mount Sinai. The people said, let's stand far off. Let's keep our distance. Let's not, kids, don't get too close. Do not experiment. Do not get too close to God. Now, I suggest that many people have lost this high view of God. They think of God as perhaps their buddy from down at work, their old chum from school, from their school days. Many people have lost this sense of the holiness of God. I want to tell you, God has not changed. He's still just as holy today as he was then. Listen to chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 16. It came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain. I mean, Mount Sinai was all together in a smoke. A great, thick, dense cloud descended upon it, and there were thunderclaps, and there was fire, and it says, the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. <laughs> I can imagine, can't you? And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in a fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And as the trumpet sounded and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake and God answered him by a voice and the Lord came down upon the top of Mount Sinai and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go back down and tell the people not to get close. And Moses said, I've already told them that. And God said, away with you. I said, go. God knew human nature better than Moses. Did you know? We think, well, I've already told them and they'll do what I said. No, their curiosity will kill the cat eventually. And he says, go back and you tell them again. Does that sound, my friends, like an intimidating scene in Exodus 19? Absolutely. But new covenant worship is not something forbidding, intimidating. It's not something, my friends, that is prohibitive and restrictive. You know, under the law, what was the message? Thou shalt not. It was negative, right? The old law focused on what not to do, your prohibitions and the things that were restricted. Instead of being intimidating, foreboding, prohibitive, and restrictive, new covenant worship is welcoming, it's inviting, it's accessible. We've already seen that in Hebrews 4.16 when he said, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That is with confidence. Now would you have come boldly with confidence before Mount Sinai? Absolutely not. The law tells us to keep our distance. We sing a song about this sometimes in our hymn book. It's Hail Sovereign Love. He talks about Mount Sinai. Listen to this. And this is really Christian experience. If the Lord has dealt with you by his grace and you've been brought to see your sinfulness, you know, a lot of people don't know that they're sinners. You can tell them, but until the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, then it just goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't really mean anything. But when he lays you low in the dust, you feel that you're in need of a Savior, 
the first thing people tend to do is go to the law. They run to the law for refuge, to Mount Sinai in their experience. This song talks about that. He says, enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light, madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. That is, this was my case before God dealt with me. Listen to this. But thus the eternal counsel ran, almighty love arrests that man. God in his grace arrested me in my mad career. By his almighty love, and I felt the arrows of distress. I was convicted of my sins, and I found I had no hiding place. Listen to what he says in the next verse. Indignant justice then stood in view. God is going to hold me accountable. So to Sinai's fiery mount I flew. He went to the law, didn't he? But justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. That, my beloved, is what will happen if you go to Sinai for help. For it's an intimidating place. It will give you no comfort. It offers no solution to your sin problem. I love the way this song continues. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy's angel form appeared, who led me on with gentle pace to Jesus as my hiding place. You see, the hymn writer said, I went to Mount Sinai first. But I learned that I couldn't find any rest there, so I fled to Mount Zion. You see, true believers are people who've not come to Mount Sinai. For that mountain trembled, it shook, it was foreboding, it was intimidating. But we've come to Mount Zion, a very accessible, inviting place where you can come boldly into the presence of God. My beloved, I've rushed into God's presence today without any fear of recrimination because... Jesus Christ has purchased that right for me. The description of Mount Zion in verses 22 to 24 in our text is very bright, not dark, and festive and joyful. In fact, by the way, when he says you're come to the, an innumerable company of angels, the word company there means festal assembly. It's like a party. There's joy in festivities, right? Do you know what a festival is? It's a time of joy and celebration. You've come to a, not a time to be dreaded, but a time to feast and a time to rejoice. Notice the contrast. Consequently, my friends, because the new covenant worship of the church is something accessible and God is approachable for Jesus' sake, new covenant worship is superior to the old way of worship okay that's the thought in this passage the point is the superiority of the new covenant and i want to say this before we move on the superiority of the new covenant way of worship to the old does not derive from the object of worship it's not that the god we worship is any different than the god they worshiped he's still a holy and a righteous god and therefore, he's to be worshipped with an attitude of reverence. Our attitude, the attitude of the worshiper isn't any different than it was back then. Verse 28 in our reading, I didn't go this far, but it says in the last phrase of verse 28, we may serve God, the word serve there is a synonym for worship, we may worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. My friends, reverence is still the order of the day. Godly fear is important. Godly fear. We're not talking about slavish fear. 
carnal fear. We're talking about godly fear. That is that holy awe and respect. Now, there is a very casual cavalier attitude in contemporary worship today. Would you agree? Come as you are. Wear your shorts, your sandals. Come barefooted if you want to. Because we want a very non-threatening environment for worshiping God. That's the popular mood of the day, isn't it? Can you imagine Moses coming back down from Mount Sinai and the people saying, where have you been, Moses, for the last 40 days? He said, I've just had 40 days in a very non-threatening environment, enjoying a very casual, cavalier conversation with God. We've been talking as like old chums, old buddies. No, my friends, Moses came down and he had laws in his hands. And when he saw the people violating the very laws God had just given him, Moses got so angry, he threw them down and broke them. I want to tell you, the God that we worship today is the same God they worshiped, and an attitude of reverence and godly fear is still appropriate today. I've noticed there's a tendency to dress down, to say, let's just be casual. Let's, because we're under grace, I want to tell you, grace, the new covenant, does not mean that we should make any less of an effort or that we should just cut corners or that we should be more relaxed. We can be confident because of Christ and what he's done for us. But at the same time, I think he still deserves our very best. I think God deserves my best effort to sing. You say, well, it doesn't matter whether we put forth any effort to sing. I'll tell you, my beloved, God is worthy of your best effort to worship him in song. He's worthy of my best effort to deliver a message. Would you think that I should stay in the pulpit very long if I came up here Sunday by Sunday and say, well, goodness, I haven't really even, I mean, this book, I haven't even cracked it open this week, and I don't really know what I'm going to say. I'm just going to sort of wing it and hope that he gives me, you know, funnels it in from above. And let's just talk about what's going on in the culture. And let me give you my opinion on it. And let me try to be cool up here. Let me pace the stage and take my jacket off. Now, th there's nothing wrong with removing your coat. There's nothing wrong with going tireless, I suppose. There's nothing wrong with skipping a verse in a hymn or with a preacher that says, well, I did my best, but I stumbled over my words. We're, we're just human. We know that. And we're under grace, yes. But let's remember the God we worship has not changed from the Old Covenant. And therefore, the attitude of the worshiper has not changed either. You say, then what is the difference? Why is the New Covenant superior to the Old? The reason and incentive we have to worship has changed. The reason and incentive, the motivation we have. We don't come out of fear that we're going to be punished if we don't do it. We come, my friends, out of gratitude for his grace. Love to the one who's given us these many gifts. We come to say thank you. We come offering the sacrifice of praise. The love of Christ constrains us, not the fear of punishment. Okay? That's what has changed from the old covenant to the new. And that's why what we have today is better. In other words, today, worship is not any less serious. But we now may approach God with a freedom and confidence that we will not be judged because we have a mediator, as the reading said. You're come to Jesus the mediator, verse 24, of the new covenant, and to his blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. We'll explain that, God willing, in just a moment. Now, 
I've spent a good bit of my time talking about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. Let's talk about the glory of it. The glory of it. And stay with me because here's the good part. Verses 22 to 24. You're not coming to Mount Sinai, but you are come unto Mount Zion. New covenant worship in the church is glorious. And I wonder, again, if we've ever really grasped the significance of the things that he describes here. This passage teaches us that the glory and worship of the church arises from four great realities. Let's talk about them in this order. First, the location, the locus of worship, the location. Verse 22a, you are come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The location of this worship service is not 1020 Hickman Road, Northwest, Calabash, North Carolina. The location is heaven. You are come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In a very real sense, when you're getting ready on Sunday morning to go to the house of God, you could say, come on kids, it's time to get in the car, let's go to heaven. Because when you come to church, you're going to heaven. You say, oh yeah, okay, that's just the way. Again, I wonder if we've ever grasped the reality that is being described here. You are come. Now he's talking to the Hebrews. They were people who were living right at that time. And he's writing to them saying, you are not come to Mount Sinai. It's not something purely physical, but you are come to Mount Zion. And what is Mount Zion? What is the corporate worship of the church? It is the city of the living God. This is God's city. Now, Calabash is Man's City, Shalot, North Myrtle Beach. These are our cities, but I'll tell you, the church is God's city, and notice he's the living God, the city of the living God, and he calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. You may know in the book of Revelation, John sees as the curtains of heaven are pulled, he's blessed to peer into that invisible or unseen world to our natural eyes and he gets several visions one of which he describes like this in chapter 14 verse 1 I looked and lo a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him a hundred and forty four thousand having his father's name written in their foreheads that is these people are identified as the true servants of God I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters that sounds pretty austere Pretty awe-inspiring. And as the voice of great thunder, notice God's presence is still described in terms of something that is magnificent, powerful, something that leaves us awestruck. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. I like that. Harpers harping with their harps. That's angels singing, strumming their tunes. And as they sung, they sung a new song before the throne. Now this isn't the old song of Moses crossing the Red Sea, deliverance from political bondage. This is a new and better song before the throne and before the four beasts. Notice these harpers and these, this 144,000 true servants of God are singing before the throne of God while the Lamb is on Mount Zion. Now Zion is used to describe the church. In the New Testament, the expression, of course, was 
is an Old Testament reference. There was a literal mountain, you know, around Jerusalem. Mount Zion is where the people would go up to worship, Mount Zion. But he tells us in the prophecies of Old Testament scripture that Mount Zion would now be realized in the new covenant when the lamb stands on Mount Zion. And he talks about this scene in Revelation 14. It's, it's a heavenly description. Wouldn't you agree? Listen to Revelation 21. Verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, our text said. New Jerusalem, the heavenly. We're not talking about the earthly Jerusalem. We're not talking about a political city in Israel today. We're talking about a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new capital city of God. Coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, I don't know how long you've been attending Primitive Baptist churches, but if you've been attending for very long and you've heard a variety of ministers, you've probably heard some preachers preach Revelation 21 as the church. And you've heard other preachers preach Revelation 21 as heaven. And if you're like me, I've stood out under the shade tree and heard preachers debate and discuss whether the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is talking about heaven, eternal heaven, or the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say this, there is more that is said in Revelation 21 than would apply to the local church. He says there will be no more death in that city. There's no more pain there. I think we still have deaths. We still have pain. We still have sorrows. We still have troubles here, right? The devil won't enter that city. Sometimes he gets in here, doesn't he? Does the devil ever tear up the church? You say, which one is it, the church or heaven? It's both. For the church is a microcosm, a small-scale replica or example of eternal heaven. The church, my beloved, is a heavenly institution. Would you agree with that? It originated in heaven. Christ is the author of it. He made it. It preaches a heavenly message. Its news comes from a far country. You see, we are associated not simply with the secular world around us, but we belong to the next world, and the church is a heavenly festal gathering of people and when we come to church with other redeemed people whose hope is in Jesus Christ we are entering my friends into a setting in which we get a taste of the next world a taste of heaven in which what is happening here is very supernatural even though my throat gets scratchy and I stumble over my word you say that's a natural man preaching or telling us what the Bible means, and we're singing songs that have been written by men, I'm telling you what we're doing here is more than appears, there's more happening here than appears on the surface. Okay? The location of worship is heaven in this passage. When we come into the house of God on Sunday mornings, we cross the threshold from the secular to the sacred, from the common to the uncommon, and from the earthly into the heavenly.
This is what the book of Ephesians means when it says that we've been made to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That phrase, heavenly places or high places, appears at least four times in Ephesians. And it means the invisible world of spiritual realities. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is reality limited to what you can see? Is reality limited to the visible world? I know that this songbook is real. I can see it, touch it. I can experience it with my five senses. I know that you're real. I see you there. I think I see you. No, I see you there. You're real, right? I know that my automobile is real. I drove in it this morning. The, the pavement is real. The building is real. The visible world is real. But I'm telling you, believers know that there's more to reality than the physical world. There's something metaphysical that is just as real. The invisible world of spiritual realities, that's what heavenly places mean. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You say, Brother Mike, money in my pocket is a blessing. Good health is a blessing. Yes, indeed, but my friends, forgiveness of your sins is a blessing too. You can't see that or put your hands on it, can you? But the hope of eternal bliss is a blessing. The fellowship of brotherly love of the saints is a blessing. What I'm describing, my friends, is the location of worship is heaven. So when we come here on Sunday mornings, let's go to heaven. You say, where were you this morning? I tried reaching you on your cell phone and just rang and rang. I did, couldn't get you. I, I'd gone to heaven. I'd gone to heaven. And I always turn off my cell phone when I go to heaven, right? <laughs> hint, hint. Let's talk about the participants. We're talking about the glory of worship with the church in the new covenant. Why is it so glorious? Because the locus, the location is heaven. It's glorious, secondly, because the participants, and follow me right here, are myriads of angels, the entire redeemed family of God, and the disembodied souls of departed loved ones who've gone before. Listen to this. You are come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Follow me closely. There are more people here today than appears on the surface. Most of our primitive Baptist churches, you know, have lower numbers than many, many of the worldly churches do. I mean, you say, how many members do you have? We've got this many members. And you know, they sometimes pastors will ask me, how many do you usually have on Sunday morning? I'll, you know, say, well, you know, on a good day, 50, 60, somewhere around there. I'm telling you though, that's really inaccurate. Because when we come to worship, there are myriads and myriads of angels who have gathered with us. You have come to Mount Zion, which is a heavenly place. And my friends, there are angels all around us. We sing about that sometimes. Would you listen to this verse from a hymn that was in our hymnal? It's the hymn, O Thou God of My Salvation. Listen to this. While the angel choirs are crying. Now we know the angels are worshiping right now in heaven. While the angel choirs are crying, glory to the great I am, I with them will still be vying, the hymn writer says. In other words, I'm in competition. I'm not going to let an angel outdo me in worshiping my Lord. I with them will still be vying, glory, glory to the Lamb. Oh, how precious, oh, how precious is the sound of Jesus' name. Listen to this. Angels now are hovering round us. 
unperceived amid the throng, wondering at the love that crowned us. They're perplexed. Why would God love poor sinners? They desire to look into those things, says 1 Peter 1.12, that you see and understand. That is, they are mesmerized that God would favor human beings who are sinful mortals. He says, wondering at the love that crowned us, glad to join the holy throng. Hallelujah, hallelujah, love and praise to Christ belong. Do you really believe that? Do you ever think about that, that angels now are hovering around us? I have to tell you, I get very nervous as a preacher. Every Sunday I have to stand before the Lord's people. Do you know why? Because I'm not used to speaking in front of such a tremendous and sizable crowd. Because there are many, many more people observing what's happening right now than just those who are here. The people are joined with these heavenly watchers. By the way, that's what the book of Daniel calls angels. They are observers of the church. You want a verse to prove that? Ephesians 3.10. He says, Now to the intent that the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There's that phrase, heavenly places. Principality, these are angelic rank, ranks of angels. The principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It might be known by the church that is manifested, made known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. That verse means that angels are spectators of what we're doing here this morning. And we are showcasing the church is making known the manifold wisdom of God. You see, the angels understand God's wisdom in creation. They see that he was a wise God in the way he made the universe. But we are showcasing the manifold wisdom of God because we not only preach that God is the creator, but we preach that God has fashioned a scheme of redemption that was so successful that it guarantees the salvation of every one of his people. The wisdom of God in grace, in salvation, my friends, on display when the church preaches the gospel and meets for worship and the angels are watching to the intent that now even unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places it might be showcased by the church we are showcasing the manifold wisdom of God and they are observing it my beloved I don't know how that strikes you this morning the participants of worship according to Hebrews 12 when we come to Mount Zion is an innumerable festal assembly of angels. We're joining with the angels in singing about the glories of God. Not only the angels, the entire redeemed family is joining us in worship. He says in verse 23, and to the general assembly in church of the firstborn. Now, this church is a local assembly. Back in chapter 10 of Hebrews, he said, not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's the local assembly. But here's the general assembly and church of the firstborn. <laughs> Who's the firstborn? Jesus, right? Whose names are written in heaven. Another hymn specifies this point. The hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. When it says this, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore until with the vision glorious, 
Her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. What he's saying there, my friends, is the entire redeemed family, the communion of saints, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, join us in worship at this moment of the Lord God of heaven and earth. And finally, the disembodied souls of the saints. And to the spirits, you are come to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, where are their bodies? Their bodies have been buried, right? But their spirits live on. The soul never dies. You know that, don't you? To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord, right? And the spirits of just men made perfect, their spirits have taken flight into the presence of the Lord. And while we're worshiping, my friends, we are joining them in worship. And you say, Brother Mike, how does this happen? Well, because he's the living God and he's not bound by time. So the whole group of saints from ages past, right now, you see, God is not limited to the present moment. He's the great I am. And worship appears in his presence at all times and in all places. When we come to worship, my friends, we're joining with the saints that have gone before. I don't know how to explain this to you. Except to say it like Samuel Stone says in this song, Yet she on earth hath union with God, the, the church on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion, listen, mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. You know what that means? It means Brother Welton and Sister Ann Smith are worshiping with us this morning. It means, my friends, that Brother Danny Babson is worshiping with us this morning. It means that Brother John and Sister Pat Lewis are worshiping with us this morning. Brother Doug McLam is worshiping with us this morning. Brother Jimmy McLam is worshiping with us this morning. Sister Laura Benton is worshiping with us this morning. The spirits of just men made perfect. They're spirits. When we come to worship, we are doing the same thing they're doing. My grandfather, Elder Sylvester Goins, my grandmother, Sister Minnie Goins, they have joined me for worship today. I wonder if we really believe this passage. We've come to heaven at Old Bethel Church today. We've crossed the threshold from the secular to the sacred, from the common to the uncommon, from the earthly to the heavenly. We've come joined by many angels, myriads and myriads and myriads of festal angels. The entire redeemed throng joins us in worshiping the Lamb right now. What we're doing has supernatural implications. And the spirits of just men, that is, they're justified people, made perfect. Their spirits have been made perfect. Their spirits are now joining us in the celebration of the Lamb of God. You know why worship in the church is so glorious? Because, my friends, the location is heaven, the participants are angels, the entire triumphant church, and the disembodied souls of the departed loved ones that have gone before. This is a reality. If it's not, Hebrews 12 means nothing. It is one of the most sublime portions of Scripture in all the New Testament. And notice the recipient of worship, to God the judge of all. We've come into his very presence today. 
And notice the means of worship, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Now, the mediation of Christ has been the theme of the whole book of Hebrews, and we've come to this place because of what he's done for us, and his blood, which speaks better things than that of Abel. You remember when Cain and Abel worshipped God in Genesis 4? The original worship war took place. Cain didn't like the fact that God accepted Abel's worship and he didn't accept his. By the way, that should teach us that everything that goes by the name of worship is not necessarily acceptable to God or pleasing to him. God would not accept Cain. Just because somebody says, we've worshipped today, doesn't necessarily mean that God looks at it as worship. Okay? For he accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. But I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel's sacrifice. Abel offered a lamb whose blood typified redemption to come, but I'm telling you the blood of Jesus Christ is the actual sacrifice that has put away our sins. So when we come into the presence of God, the means by which we come is Jesus' perfect merit. The one we come to worship and who receives our worship is God, the judge of all. He's the judge in terms of the fact he's justified his people and made us fit to come into his presence, and he will also do justice on behalf of his church, and she will be vindicated ultimately. We've come to join the angels in the redeemed throng and those saints that have gone before us in worshiping him. That's why church is more than just business as usual. This, my friends, is a truly mind-boggling event, and it's the most crucial event in your life or mine if you're going to persevere through the crisis and trials of your life here. It is critical to Christian endurance. This is glorious, truly a taste of heaven. If we ever begin to grasp the reality described in this tremendous passage, I believe it will revolutionize our worship. And we won't be concerned then about being too formal or serious about our order of worship. Rather, we'll be concerned about not being formal and serious enough about this glorious privilege of drawing near to God in worship with the church. From every stormy wind.